Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I took the lead. Wanted. Citizen cooperation urgently needed. Several abduction murders have taken place in South Oakland County involving children. This criminal apparently presents a very convincing story to the child. Be aware. Alert your child that this person could be posing as a trustworthy adult. As a result of investigation and consultation with professionals in law enforcement, as well as the medical field, here are some of the characteristics that may be associated with the person responsible for the abductions. Male possibly two males working in cooperation. Age, 25 to 30 years. Educated, intelligent. Capacity to store or keep victim for a number of days without detection. Has a compulsion for cleanliness. Work schedule permits a certain amount of freedom of movement. He has abnormal sexual habits. He may be undergoing psychiatric treatment or is desirous of same. He lives or works in Oakland County, Michigan. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the Oakland County Child Killer. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. And now... Back to the case of the Oakland County Child Killer. It starts in the heart of Detroit, Motor City, Woodward Avenue, one of the central streets of the metropolitan area. It pushes outward from the grime and dust of the city, from the decay that had not quite begun back in the 1970s. The street continues, becoming a roadway that cuts right through the suburbs, into the trees and the shade. From here on out, it's known as the Woodward Corridor. It passes through many small suburban enclaves, from Berkeley to Birmingham, from the Bloomfield Township to Ferndale, from Royal Oaks to the Terminal Point in Pontiac. A central vein carrying the manufactured cars, jobs, and livelihoods out of the city and into the suburbs of Oakland County. However, during the same period in the mid to late 70s, it also became a site for something much darker. There were always plenty of hitchhikers along the corridor, most of them teenagers trying to escape hard lives. When they disappeared, many didn't seem to care or even notice. But soon, it wasn't just hitchhikers disappearing anymore. Four promising young lives, aged between 10 and 12 years old, began to blink out of existence. Stolen away, not on the Woodward Corridor, but from the neighborhoods and towns that ran along it. Disturbance and death had come to Oakland County. Soon enough, this would become a crisis for local law enforcement, leading to the largest criminal investigation up to that point in U.S. history. 
This is the story of that crisis, of that investigation, and of the mysteries that still remain. Surrounding the infamous Oakland County child killer. Tidings of the horror to come began as early as 1974, right outside of Oakland County, Michigan, across the line in Wayne County. On June 22nd, 13-year-old James Davison decided to take a walk to his friend's house. Then he vanished. Several days later, on June 26th, James was found in an alleyway, nearly unconscious, but alive. He had been held captive for several days and strangled, but he survived the ordeal. Some would later believe this crime was committed by the same killer that would come to haunt Oakland County, meaning that, despite the terror, James was a lucky child indeed. Another shocking act of violence occurred on January 15, 1976, in the town of Roseville, just outside of Detroit proper. 16-year-old Cynthia Ray Cadu lived a blue-collar life in this blue-collar town. After a night spent out with a friend, Cynthia decided to walk home. She never arrived. Instead, she was found six hours later in a wealthier area of Oakland County. Stripped naked, her body laid in the snow, Cynthia's skull had been cracked open. Evidence of rape was discovered during the autopsy. Such a horrible fate disquieted many hearts in the community. But shock always subsides. After all, it was a freak occurrence, wasn't it? Unfortunately not. 15 miles west of Roseville in Birmingham, one of the suburbs along the Woodward Corridor, more tragedy struck. Sheila Schrock was a normal 14-year-old, just trying to earn some extra money as a babysitter for a neighbor. But she was in the wrong house on the wrong night. A burglar had already vandalized a few other homes in the neighborhood that were unoccupied. But when he broke into the house that Sheila was babysitting inside, something snapped. The criminal raped Sheila and then shot her with a small caliber pistol. He stole some valuables and then, with sick fascination, blended into the crowd gathering on the street as the police drove up and tried to figure out what happened. This man was not the Oakland child killer who would soon emerge on the scene. Another neighbor watched the entire crime against Sheila unfold as he shoveled snow off his roof next door. In complete shock, it took some time for this person to overcome their fear and come forward with what they saw. Luckily, no thanks to this observer's late report, the murderer was eventually apprehended. But at the time, it was another lit match on the fire. Hysteria was reaching a boiling point in the suburbs of Oakland County. Children kept dying. There's an effect on group dynamics when traumatic events like this happen in quick succession. Especially when they occur in places where the citizenry have come to accept a certain level of security. Crimes like this just weren't supposed to happen in places like Birmingham. And when wealthy citizens get scared, police get mobilized. Someone like Michigan State Police Captain Robert H. Robertson starts to realize he's going to be working some long nights. Hello, this is Captain Robertson. There's been another death, Captain. A kid. In Birmingham? No, but close. Ferndale. What do you think's going on here, Cap? No speculation, not yet. But just between you and me, I think we better start planning long term on this. The media is not going to let this slide, not with kids in the mix. How old was this one? Twelve. Damn it. Damn it all. Ferndale. 
Not quite the haven Birmingham was, but still an all-American town for all-American industrial workers. And there's few things more American than an American Legion Hall, where veterans and members of the community gather to support them. In Ferndale, this was a hub of activity during the Vietnam War. And it's where 12-year-old Mark Stebbins was with his mother on the night of February 15, 1976, before he decided to walk home alone. Oh, oh, Mrs. Stebbins, just the lady I've been looking for. Norma, slow down. I don't need you falling down on the floor for me. (laughs) I've got more verve than you may think, young lady. (laughs) To be young in your eyes, Miss Norma. Where's that child of yours, little Mark? What do you want with that rascal? He hasn't been cutting through your backyard again. I know we ruined your daisies last summer. I just about lost my mind. Oh, no. The boy's an angel. You know I don't mind if he takes a little detour through the yard, as long as he's still willing to cut it in the summer months. (laughs) He's enterprising, that one. Says he wants to work in the big city someday. Well, consider me an early investor. I know I missed all of you this Christmas. I wanted to pass a little money his way. Norma, what's Mark need with money? This is America. Everyone needs a little spending money. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's just too kind of you. Unfortunately, little Mark ran off home before cleanup tonight. Some show on television he just could not miss. I'll take the card to him for you. Or better yet, I'll make him stop by tomorrow. How about that? You can talk his ear off for a bit, get him socializing, and out of the house. That would be wonderful. I always love playing dominoes with the youth. (laughs) They can't catch me cheating. (laughs) He really is a darling one, Mrs. Stebbins. (laughs) Despite my tone, I can't help but love the boy, can I? Now go on home to him. We can finish up here. When his mother arrived home, though, Mark Stebbins was gone. For the next four days, it was chaos in the town, as police struggled to find any lead whatsoever. After Mark left the American Legion Hall, there was no sighting of him at all. And when there was one, it was already too late. Four days later, on February 19th, local businessman Mark Boedigheimer was walking to his car in the office lot when a nearby snowbank caught his eye. More specifically, what was in the snowbank, a colorful mark amidst the white a small body. It's hard to be prepared for the young ones. My line of work, you put it out of mind. Especially lately. What the hell's going wrong with the world? So how did it happen? What did the monster do to him? Cause of death? Suffocation, as far as I can tell. No serious marks in the neck, though. It's not always that obvious. Cleanest, easiest way sometimes is just to clamp the nose shut, put a hand over the mouth. After days of imprisonment? A child this old, willpower can give out rather quickly to fear, confusion. I don't understand why this happens, and I do this for a living. Why a 12-year-old boy? What else can you tell me? (sighs) Marks around the wrist. Not deep, but probably a sign of being bound for at least a short period of time. And sexual assault. (laughs) I was waiting for that shoe to drop. Sexual assault with an unidentified object. But the penetration did damage. No semen or other bodily fluid found, though. Picked off the street? 
kept in the same clothes, abused and dropped off on the side of the road? Whoever did this, we're going to catch them. Anything it takes. But it was going to take a lot. The next few months were quiet. The Stebbins case went nowhere fast. By December 22nd of the same year, perhaps Oakland County had settled back into uneasy normality, hoping for the best. Fine then, get out. You don't want to help with dinner? Get out until you can become part of this family. Carol Robinson of Royal Oak, along the corridor, just had a furious argument with her 12-year-old daughter, Jill. This wasn't an unhappy family, just an unhappy moment. A suburban disturbance any family might find familiar. A fight that would be resolved once the runaway child decided the road wasn't for them, and they turned back up the street for home, their pride tempered. A mother like Carol wouldn't turn her daughter away. She'd have welcomed her back with a firm reprimand or two, but mostly with love. After all, they were lucky to have what they did, a comfortable home in a peaceful neighborhood, a small piece of the American dream. But as the sound of Jill's pedaling faded into the distance, a deeper silence took over. Jill didn't come home that night. The next day, on the 23rd, her bicycle was found behind a local hobby store, seemingly abandoned by the young girl. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's continue the story. On December 26th, 1976, the mystery came to a violent end. A trucker along Interstate 75 near the town of Troy pulled over to find a body, once again laid out in the snow. But Jill's case wasn't identical to Mark Stebbins in all ways. She was still fully clothed in the same outfit she ran away from home in, and her runaway backpack was laid out next to her. This time, though, the snow was stained in blood. Jill had been shot in the head, nearly point-blank with a shotgun blast. Both investigators and citizens were pushed back into a frantic rush of concern and fear. What they thought was over was just beginning. The nightmare of the Oakland County child killer had officially begun. Fear cascaded across the state as the serial killer theory gained credence. Captain Robertson, sad to say, but you were right. We got something official happening here. Birmingham, Ferndale, now Royal Oak. This is state police business, all right. 
Oakland County Sheriff Spring isn't going to be too happy about all the toes we're going to start stepping on. Yeah, we need to organize. We need to organize fast. This is one psychopath. All of them. I can tell. And what gives you that thought, Columbo? As far as I see it, the Stebbins boy and this Jill Robinson died in different ways. Sure, but I bet you noticed a few other things, too. Say how both bodies were left in public places, only a few days after the disappearance itself. Stebbins, out near an office. And Robinson, what the hell? Troy PD is right over that rise. The entire police department was going to be driving past this spot every day. This killer wanted the bodies to be found. I can see the possibility. But the shotgun blast? <sighs> Erasure. Huh. Hiding. The cause of death. Well, perhaps when he laid the body out here, he got scared. Thought it would look too much like Stebbins killing. So he destroyed any chance of us ever knowing if Robinson died via suffocation, like Stebbins. Oh, I'm saying, it's a possibility. That it is. And we've got little else to go off right now. If this is one person, I fear he'll be supplying more evidence soon enough. Dr. Robert Sillery, chief pathologist for Oakland County, eventually determined that Jill's body didn't present any obvious signs of sexual assault, another definitive difference from Stebbins' death. Yet investigators like Robertson couldn't shake the feeling that this was the beginning of something bigger. On the evening of January 2, 1977, a call was made to Berkeley Police Station, another town right off the Woodward Corridor, just a short distance from Royal Oak. This call would solidify the hunt for the Oakland County child killer because another child had just gone missing. Berkeley Police Station. My name's Deborah Ashcroft. My 10-year-old Christine, Christine Mihalik, she went to pick something up at the 7-Eleven at 12 Mile in Oakshire, but that was at 3 and it's been hours and... Okay, okay, ma'am. Uh, let's get all this down. Let's, let's start from the beginning. You don't think it's like those others? Those poor children. Let's take it slow, ma'am. Start from the top. Over the next 19 days, Berkeley's PD phones were ringing off the hook, all with tips on who had taken Christine. In the end, none of them were viable. One mark of this case continued. The bodies of the children weren't found until the killer wanted them found. And they were always found. In the affluent suburb of Franklin Village, not far from Royal Oak, it was an average day for U.S. mail carrier Jerome Wozni. Another day, another stroll through the finer side of life. Look at these houses. Too big. Whole country's going crazy. What is that? Unfortunately, in his haste, Jerome stepped all over the crime scene. But at first, it just didn't make any sense to him. Later, when speaking to the police... Keep it together, Mr. Wozni. We just need to know why your footprints are so close to the body. I, I didn't know it was a body. It was so small. It was just the blue something. But by the time I realized it was a jacket, I... By that night, Robertson and his state police team were on the scene in full force. Indeed, putting them right up against Oakland County Sheriff Johan Spreen. Quite a situation we have, Spreen. 
I heard from Franklin Village PD. You stopped by. Said this was going into the hands of the state police. Any objections to that, Sheriff? I think we both know this isn't an isolated event. It's a crisis for the whole county, of which I'm Sheriff. Look, Spreen, I know you come from Detroit. I know your legacy. You are the damn commissioner. I want to assure you this isn't about power plays for me. It's about efficiency. It's about getting the right team together. And it's about finding our damn killer. So what do you need? I need permission to do what I have to do. Including... Hey, detective! Over here! Spreen, this is Detective Sergeant Joseph Kreese. He's the best investigator I know. And he'll be leading up our special task force. Lieutenant? Sheriff? Well, we got ourselves a regal cowboy here. I've got Lieutenant Pat Sullivan of Ferndale putting his men out into the surrounding neighborhood, questioning every household for anything they might have seen. Our state police lab specialists have just wrapped looking at the body. We're getting it ready for transport now. So it's definitely Christine Mihalich? Officially, no. But in reality, no question about it, Sheriff. Here comes lab tech Sharky now. Lads, it's cold out. We need to get her back to the lab, stat. What can you tell us now? Smothered like Stebbins, almost identical. Arms folded over her peaceful like she was posed. Left in the snow, too, on display. Let's get things moving, Joe. I put the word out. Each police chief in South Oakland County will be putting together a team to send our way. We're setting up a remote office tonight. Task force underway. Humble beginnings, but soon enough, this special investigative unit would become the largest media spectacle in the country. The task force would come to be made up of officials and investigators from over 13 separate communities. After all, this was a local issue. No person in their right mind wanted the Oakland County child killer on the loose. It was a fear that struck deep into the heart of communities like these, that their children were growing up in a more dangerous world than they did, that despite all of their work, they could never assure their family's safety. This is what drove the task force and the coverage surrounding it into the media stratosphere. But the real work was being done on the ground by people like police captain Robertson and detective sergeant Kreese. They needed to assemble the perfect team fast. One of the first people Kreese thought to reach out to was psychologist, professor, and cop, Dr. Jerry Tobias. The founder of Southfield Township's Youth Bureau, he was an expert in dealing with abuse cases. Thanks for meeting with me, doctor. It's sad that at times like these, I'm at my most useful. So. Tell me where to start. First off, we need to stop thinking like cops and start thinking like kids. All their lives, kids have been told that they shouldn't speak to strangers. So if someone like our child killer here drove up to an unaccompanied minor, what is it about him that might make the child trust him? You don't think that's an authority figure? Cop, priest, fireman, we tell our kids these are the most trustworthy strangers. In this case, maybe we misled them. I can't imagine it. That's why you have me. Now, let's think on the killer himself. He's able to hold these kids from one night to four to 19 nights for the latest. He's probably local and rural, has a setup somewhere no one ever thinks to look. And considering the schedule of the kidnappings, it might be safe to assume he's unemployed or has a non-traditional work schedule. And the marks of abuse. No doubt about it. A pedophile. One who can blend in, too. Probably white. Possibly middle class. 
a regular around the neighborhoods. A guy who can drive up to a highly trafficked road and dump a child's body multiple times. A profile was beginning to come together, but there was still no physical description of a possible suspect, key in the early days of cases like this. All of Creases and Robertson's neighborhood canvassing was coming up empty. Their target had avoided all eyes, it seems. They needed an observation specialist. And they knew just the man for the job, Lieutenant R. Jerry Simmons of Southfield PD's intelligence unit. I'm glad you boys finally got this task force together. You know, after Stebbins' death, I was ready to go. Unfortunately, the state waits on these matters until the danger's clear. Danger's always clear to me, Captain. That's why we've come to you now. Christine Mihalik, the third victim, her funeral's coming up. Mm. And you think it might be bait? We know one thing for certain about this killer. He leaves the bodies to be discovered, no doubt about it. Right on the road. Looking for attention. Looking for something. He also keeps the victims alive for days at a time. Meaning he thinks he has some kind of connection to them. See where your intelligence unit comes in? Yeah, we'll we'll scope it out. Take pictures of every single person that walks out of that church or into the graveyard. If our guy's a stranger, he'll stick out like a sore thumb. The trap was laid. He's up, he's up. The procession's on the move. Rhino, you good to go? Already, Hippo. Let's find this clown. Taken from us too early. A beautiful life, now in the hands of God. We pray for her soul, and we know she will be held safe in the palm of his hand. Nobody off the guest list, as far as I can tell, Rhino. Let's get back and develop these. The boss is going to want to go over every inch. Scan every single photo they did, and Simmons called up Crease with news. This is Detective Sergeant Joseph Crease. It's Simmons. The funeral? You got someone? I don't know, not yet. He wasn't with the main crowd, but he stood outside the church, followed the procession, and watched as the girl got put in the ground. We need his physical appearance. Real shaggy looking guy, Caucasian, glasses, and I'll send over the whole profile. Perhaps the first big break in the case had arrived, but they were already too late. Back in Birmingham, the site of babysitter Sheila Srock's killing, there was another family calling out to a child who would not respond. The fourth potential victim of the Oakland County child killer disappeared on March 16, 1977, 11-year-old Timothy King. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue the story. Yes? Mr. King, my name's Jerry Tobin, Birmingham Police Chief. This is Officer Donald Studd. Uh, Hi, Mr. King. We're here to help get the search started for your son, Timothy. Chief Tobin sat down with the Kings, Barry and Marion. At first, his line of questioning was cautious. As much as it pained him to think it, many missing child cases eventually circle back to the parents, hiding their own abuse. But it didn't take long for Tobin to conclude this was not the case with the Kings. We went out for dinner. 
Our daughter Kathy and son Chris were going to alternate babysitting duty for Timmy. <laughs> Kathy was excited. She was going to see Jerry Lee Lewis tonight in concert. She told us she told us that Timmy asked to run to the store. She gave him some money and he made her promise to leave the door open for him. He took off with his skateboard. Kathy left for the concert and when when we got home, the door was open, but Timmy he wasn't here. Tobin left Stutt to watch over the Kings. He informed Robertson of the development. It was clear to them that the same abductor had struck again, but they didn't want to scare the Kings. It was clear enough that they knew the possibility. Everyone in Birmingham did. It was hoped that the worst had passed, that the murderer had been frightened off from our area. But terror continues with another child's disappearance. Date of print, March 17, 1977. Detroit Metro News. The nightmare escalates in Oakland County with the vanishing of 11-year-old Timothy King from Birmingham, Michigan. Interrupting regularly scheduled programming. WXYZ Evening Show has some breaking news regarding the Timothy King case. While the task force assembled to hunt the so-called Oakland County child killer has yet to make an official statement, the diagnosis seems clear. The Oakland County child killer has most likely struck again. Too close to home for many residents of Birmingham and the surrounding towns of the Woodward Corridor. Birmingham proved to be very open to the task force. The firehouse even vacated some space for Kreese and his team to set up a command center in town. No one wanted to let another child's life slip through the cracks. And unlike every other disappearance, Timothy Kings wasn't without witnesses, or at least a potential witness. State your name, ma'am. Uh, Edith Robacher. Can you explain to us what you saw the night of March 16th and how you came to see it? Of course. I had been visiting my daughter in another town, and when I got back in Birmingham, I realized I was completely out of food back home. So I stopped by the Chatham supermarket. It was around 8.30 by the time I finished, and walked out to the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Be very specific what you tell me next, Mrs. Raubacher. Of course. Um, I, I saw a blue gremlin in the parking lot. Such a strange looking car. I would recognize it anywhere, and standing next to it was a man and a little boy. Tell me, did the boy look like this? Yeah, well, it was awful dark. Only the car was really under the parking lot light, but it could have been. What was he wearing? A jacket, red with a little collar, like the ball players use. An athletic jacket? Uh, yes. And the man? Mm, I'll try my best. Um, he was around six feet tall, I'd say, a white man, but with Mediterranean features, I'd say. A lot of thick hair, long sideburns. I can't stand those on men. Facial hair? No, no, just those sideburns and, and that bushy hair. Within hours, the task force had assembled the most concise description of a suspect they'd had yet. An artist's rendering was complete, and a bulletin was sent out across airwaves and newspapers. The community of Oakland County rallied. Operation Observation went into effect. Every postal carrier in the district was given a copy of the bulletin. Civilian mobile watch was assembled by a bunch of amateur radio operators. Signs were put up in windows of businesses and homes, claiming themselves as safe havens for any endangered children. The task force also believed they had a lock on the abduction vehicle. Robertson put a call into the office of the county prosecutor. 
Chief Assistant Dick Thompson was convinced they were on the right path. Damn it, Robertson, great job. We've got the sicko now. Uh, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. I can see it already. It's the guy from Christine Mihalik's funeral. Those bushy sideburns, leftover hippie trash. He's the one in the gremlin. Count on it. Thompson and his office authorized a warrant for the police to stop any blue gremlin they came across on the road. Hundreds were pulled over and searched. Meanwhile, the King family did not want to leave anything to chance. Give it to me straight, Donald. You're the cop here. What's the chance of Timothy getting released? Could the guy be holding out for a ransom? Barry, I, I just don't see it. He would have made his intentions known by this point in the hunt. But he could still be swayed, right? Uh, a press conference. I'll do it. Barry, please. The, the stress. It could be just me, Marion. You can write that letter you were talking about. Publish it in the papers. We'll come at it from both sides. Donald, what do you think? I'll have to take it to the chain of command. Tobin, then Kreese, and Robertson. But we can make this happen. We will. Officer Donald Stutt was no liar. Soon enough, Robertson put Jerry Tobin and Joseph Kreese in charge of organizing Barry's press conference. He would go on television and ask the killer to return his son. Barry would go all the way, saying that anything was negotiable. The Kings just wanted Timmy back, safe and sound, before it was too late. Marion's letter went to the press soon afterward. But in this case, it wasn't a plea toward the monster who had captured her boy. It was addressed directly to Timmy and hoped that perhaps he might get a chance to read it and know her love and hope. I am expecting at any moment for the side door to bang open and hear Tim say, Have we ate yet? I mean, have we had dinner yet? When that happens, I will run for his favorite Kentucky Fried Chicken and mix his glass of Ovaltine. Wherever Tim is, he is distressed about worrying me. He is impatient to return to rehearsing for his role as Mike TV in the upcoming production of Willy Wonka at Adams School. He is also eager to play on his basketball team, try out for Little League and his new career as a soccer player. There are no words to express how much we all miss Tim. It is my hope that Tim is not frightened or hungry. We are overwhelmed at the outpouring of love and support from neighbors and friends. The magnificent efforts of the Birmingham police and their associates from all over Michigan are beyond any expectations. We are eagerly anticipating Tim's safe arrival. Someone, please, give him all our love until we can do that ourselves. Honey, I'm home. I'll be up in a bit. Need to wind down. Damn it. Captain Robertson. You sure? Livonia. I'll give Joe a call. We'll be out there soon. Robbie? Everything okay? Not anymore. Another body. March 22nd, 1977, six days after Timothy's disappearance. Two teenagers were driving across the county line dividing Oakland from Wayne. On the Wayne side, near the town of Livonia, they spotted something in the snow. A small body in a red jacket. And lying nearby, a skateboard.
Captain Robertson. Joe, is it- The doc's taking a look. Can't be sure, but the cause of death seems to be suffocation. No marks on the throat. Just a finger over the nose and a hand over the mouth. Like Stebbins. Like Mihalik. Need to deal with the media. We can't let the Kings find out like this. Take care of it like I taught you. I'll go get together with Chief Tobin and that officer that's been staying with the Kings. It's best if they break the news. <sighs> One of them's gonna have to take a trip to the morgue and ID the body as fast as possible. Understood. Detective Sergeant Crease, have you identified the body? Look, settle down, everyone. You guys are going to say what you're going to say. But remember, until the post-mortem is finished, we really can't say anything definite. If it is Timmy, and it undoubtedly is, we'd really rather not have his parents find out on television. We've been straight with you, and you've been straight with us. I'll be in touch as soon as I have official word. Can I trust you to keep your own? Appreciate it. Birmingham Chief Jerry Tobin and Donald Studd were the ones to inform the Kings their boy's fate. The media kept their word to crease, but it was only a matter of time before this news would break, and there would be no going back now. The Oakland County child killer had reached a terrible status, a local legend in the making. There was no putting this genie back into the bottle. But back on the road, off the Woodward Corridor, the grunt workmen of the task force continued their tedious work. A few detectives from the state police decided to grab a bite at a diner along the road. As these detectives ate, something caught their eye. Someone, actually. A man seated at the bar turned away from the cops. A man with bushy hair and long sideburns. Task Force, Birmingham office. You've got Sergeant Joe Crease. Sarge, uh, we picked up a guy along the interstate. Matches physical description to a T. It's the stalker from Christine Mihalik's funeral. Name's Benjamin Ward. Bring him in. Now. Meanwhile, the official report from Timothy King's autopsy was in. Cause of death was definitively suffocation. Signs of sexual abuse and penetration are clear. Continued investigation into the contents of his stomach has revealed a few more details. Hours later, Livonia's chief of police was going live to the media with all of the findings, including one that was particularly disturbing to the King family and all those who had read Marion's letter. Timothy's last meal administered to him by the killer had been Kentucky Fried Chicken, his favorite. Next week, the task force continues. Although they have Benjamin Ward in custody, the case will soon take another turn before spiraling once again into mystery. Because as we all know, the Oakland County child killer was never found. But thanks to the efforts of those like the tireless King family, it becomes very clear that the answer may have been hiding in plain sight all along. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. 
If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the Oakland County child killer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jack Bentel and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Amber Connor, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Steve Pinto, Greg Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson. 